0: hello everyone welcome to a new episode of one vision joining arun and myself today is ashkoff waswani president of agaya welcome to the show Ashraf.
1: hey thank you thank you for having me on your show
0: thank you so much uh, for spending time with us we have quite a bit to talk about especially given your experience um, in in financial services and for years um, you spent a lot of time in the c-suite at tier one banks citigroup barclays in uk and now you are the president of a fintech firm in New York City. I think the first question that many of us will have is, how has the transition been from a big bank to fintech, and what are some of the differences that you see between the two ecosystems?
1: Oh, it's, just, <laughs> it's been quite uh, a significant difference as one can imagine, right? Uh, But you know, uh, I think it's just been fantastic. It's been a new learning, an absolutely new learning for me, right? See, fundamentally, uh, everybody understands digital disruption now. Everybody understands the need to digitize businesses and all that is like standard, right? But I've always had the belief that the way technology is moving on, it kind of crumbles old silos. So the old silo that big banks are usually organized by, which is institutional on one side, consumer on the other side, right? uh, Are actually getting decimated by technology. Take a very simple example. Take FX. The institutional side of the business always sells FX options and they've been doing that for God alone knows how long, but for some reason, that same thinking has not come to the consumer side where you can tell the consumer, Hey, we are sitting in January. You're going in uh, on uh, holiday in June. You can buy your FX in Jan, or you can wait till June, or you have the option to choose which is the better rate, right? Now, such a simple use case, but because they are the two silos, we are not able to bring things together, right? And I think that's where fintechs make a big impact, right? Because they're not wedded to the past, because they don't have that kind of legacy, right? They can come and bring it together. Same way Ditto Pagaya has basically broken down the difference between consumer finance and capital markets right and bringing them together which is very you wonder why a big bank couldn't do it right but it requires a fintech to think differently to do it now big banks have a lot of scale a lot of resources uh, a lot of capital a lot of staying power so there are lots and lots and lots and lots of advantages for a big bank Fintechs can be more nimble, they can move more quickly, they have legacy technology, they can bring new ideas to the table. My submission is, and having now lived on both sides, both need to work together, both need to kind of uh, really, uh, uh, you know, bring the power of each other because the combination between the two is far more powerful than either one going at it alone.
2: Um, Ashok, uh, I just have to ask this question because I think it was three or four years back. I think you probably were on Fintech Insider Show and you mentioned that Barclays themselves, the organization itself was a fintech in, in some sense. Um, so having that experience, is that one thing that that kind of made you decide, okay, Pagea is my next, the next uh, episode of my journey. Uh, what was that one thing? Because they they seem to have some artificial intelligence solutions for consumer access. Seem to have some nail some clearly cool uh, go to market strategies and all that. Uh, but what is the one thing that made you make that leap?
1: And I think uh, Arun, it really comes back to this, right? It really comes back to saying you can come to the market with a very very differentiated proposition. This is not about technology. Technology is an enabler, but what is it problem that it's trying to solve, right? And how can we uh, solve that problem beautifully in a way that nobody else has even started to think about
2: it. Yeah. I was just going to ask um, in terms of, Pagas uh, um, offerings itself. Um, I've, I've been looking, to, I've been researching for this conversation um, and I saw that they use artificial intelligence for um, lending, for instance, and they're able to bring a lot more sophisticated algorithms. For the lending um, uh, capability uh, and they're able to offer that to banks as a service, if i if i understand the whole proposition right um so is it are there any other capabilities that you think that that can can kind of uh kind of be part of this suite because there is a lot more that ai can do for for financial services and and, and uh if lending can be one what else what else is out there so that's you know that 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 is what really gets me excited right if you
1: think of it fundament fundamentally you think about it Pagaya technologies is really has the capability to build models using artificial intelligence and machine learning right which are able to we connect that to partners you know fintechs banks and stuff like that using contemporary technology apis and stuff like that to make it completely seamless right so the bank gets a bunch of applications call it 100 applications Usually they reject 50, 50 they approve, whether it's credit card or loan or whatever. We would normally take a first look or a second look, depending on what the bank wants, right? But even if we take second look of the 50 they reject, we are able to find usually about 20%, which we think can get approved. The economics of that get transferred to a fund, which is pre-funded. And that is by institutional investors, which allow them to get a higher yield. So as long as the accounts we pick are generating a yield that is higher than what the investors expect, everybody wins in this equation, right? The partner wins because the partner is booking far many more accounts than it would have under normal circumstances. The institutional investor wins because the institutional investor is making a return, which is far higher than they can kind of imagine. And the flywheel kind of goes around and works beautifully. Now, just think about it, starting number one, at the end consumer level this is all about financial inclusion this customer was not getting a loan was not getting a card or whatever we are actually assisting in the financial inclusion and we've actually seen from our studies that 6 9 12 months down the road once the customer gets a loan from us they get many more offers from other financial institutions as well so it really is financial institution uh, financial inclusion kind of narrative Take one step ahead and you see that the amount of volume flowing through our ecosystem is incredible. It is really incredible as to the amount of stuff that's flowing through our ecosystem. So at one level, at one level, can we think of ourselves as like a visa or a MasterCard where on the one hand, we have a whole bunch of institutional investors. On the other hand, we have a whole bunch of banks all across the country in the largest uh, asset size, pools there are in the world and we are able to facilitate uh helping banks and fintechs as well as institutional investors think about all the data that is then coming to us and where we can take the data and go with it right and credit origination is one use case but wherever there is data and that data lends itself to better decision making uh, we can play there one of the areas that we are really looking at is single family residences right? There's a lot of data in the US, lots of data in the US, which tells you, uh, you know, when you apply machine learning uh, and AI, that which will have a better house price appreciation and give you a better rental yield. So same logic, you go out and buy the houses, you take the money from the fund, the rental yield gives you a great return on an ongoing basis, and house price appreciation is cream on the cake, right? So you can just see that the application of this kind of model is so 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 powerful.
2: Uh, I just have to ask one more top-up question on that, Theo. If that's okay. Sorry, I'm just getting excited about the model here. So okay. um, this is this is uh, very similar to funding exchange in the UK, show, which which is one of uh, my portfolio company uh, companies. And uh, the reason I wanted to ask this question is so if we say that of the 50% rejects from banks. Pagea is able to hypothetically serve 20% of that population um, through a a, a pool of capital that institutional investors are willing to offer. There are two reasons why they're able to provide the service. One, because the institutional investors have higher risk appetite than the banks. The second, uh, Pagea is able to provide better data points uh, for the the institutional investors to make that decision. I think it's probably a combination of both. Have you thought about providing as some kind of a service for the banks to use uh, so that the 50% actually comes down to 25% or something um, and and the capital you have to manage to to deliver is actually much smaller and it becomes a much more capital efficient business? I'm just throwing thoughts at you, sorry. Arun, Arun, you are absolutely right, right? Is
1: there a way that we could, uh, Right now we are doing the underwriting as well as the funding. Is there a way that can be, uh, can, can be, you know, isolated so that you do only the underwriting? Yeah, of course it could be, but right now, you know, I think our partners really value the fact that not only do we do the underwriting, we also do the funding, right? Uh, it's a big deal for them. Right. And look, the economics actually work out quite well because the servicing fees we pay our partners are scale servicing fees. If you are starting out as a new fintech, your costs of servicing are very high, because but we are paying scaled servicing fees, and therefore it's it's like literally a win-win-win-win from all kind of perspectives. But can we isolate the two? Of course, you can.
0: So let's pick up on that and 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 go go one more direction here because. There is a lot of talk in the U.S., especially this year, around CFBP, and there's scrutiny on companies using AI and extending credit and making sure that um, there's transparency with regards to the decisions, there is traceability, there's explainability, and, and all of that. Can, can you walk us through, with that and back in the backdrop, how do we integrate responsible lending into the whole picture? Because understanding, you know, the the climate that we're in right now, um, hyperinflation has been highest for many, many years. Household debt is sky high with um, consumer credit card debts and mortgage debt and, and what have you. So how do we walk that fine line between extending credit to those who need it and making sure that we're not overburdening them with something that they can't afford
1: so uh, let, let, let's be very very clear we are a business to business kind of uh, company okay our partners are uh, highly regulated so they have to stand up in front of the regulators and say this is the model that we are using and therefore and be able to explain the model uh, to the regulator, so we spend a lot of time on two things. Number one, the kind of data that we use, and typically what we do is we use only transunion data. Right? We've got about 20 years of transunion data, and that is that data set allows us to uh, uh, build our models and stuff like that. And the artificial intelligence works on that data. We are not using alternative sources of data. We are not saying what is your geo location on your phone, how many likes you've got on Facebook all of that stuff we are not doing at all we are using solid credit bureau transunion data all our data is fcra compliant so it's fully regulatory compliant and we have taken care to build up a whole model governance uh, process so typically when we go to our partners that's usually this is the kind of question you get first right is it you know regulatory compliant You have model governance, FCRA compliant and stuff like that. So we are very, very, very cognizant of that and make sure that, you know, we're getting this right.
2: Um, Ashok, I have to ask you one question on profitability versus growth uh, in this in this journey, because What's happened, uh, particularly since 2008 onwards, um, until the, the cap, until COVID, COVID almost hit us, we've seen lots of fintechs that's been ra- rising and, and, and they've been really prioritizing growth ahead of profitability. Um, and uh, and uh, that's hurt a lot of BNPL organizations. Challenger banks have suffered as well. I'm sure you you've uh, read the news um, on Klarna and and uh, other other European challenger banks. Um, what is your take on that from a Pagaya perspective? I know there's there's a bit of uh, there's there's not a lot of uh, loss making at Pagaya. It's gone through the uh, Q3 numbers and uh, it looks very robust. But what are your strategies around that? How are you planning to grow from here? Is it is it Uh, very growth intensive or is it going to be profitability? Are you planning inorganic growth? Is there anything that you can talk about?
1: So Arun, uh, look, I think, you know, as usual, the pendulum, I'm talking about the fintech industry in general. In general, the pendulum had swung too much to one end, right? I mean, cost of money was zero, and therefore, you know, everybody said kind of grow as quickly as possible because the discount factor was zero. So valuations were absolutely insane right absolutely insane and everybody knew those valuations were insane and any educated uh player would have said those valuations are insane so it came home to roost right as things normally do now potentially they've gone you know to the other end where you know everybody is now kind of laying off people doing all this kind of stuff and you know uh, things like that Look, any any good business, any good business cannot lose money consistently, right? I'm a big believer that the unit economics have to work. If the unit economics work, there is a time when you're building kind of scale, and then you have to get to profitability. And a good business, long-term sustainability has to be on profitability, right? It cannot long-term, right? So it may take three years, four years, five years, whatever, whatever time frame. Is consistent but if the unit economics are working right then the rest kind of flows through then it's a matter of just adding a whole bunch of units right uh, so i think i think the pendulum is swung now too much to one extreme i think we'll get back to some kind of balance and look these are new things uh, uh, these are new things and nothing in new comes in a linear line right i mean i don't i don't even know if you remember maybe you're too young to remember there used to be something called sales finance okay now sales finance like I don't know uh, I don't know the equivalent in the UK maybe it's uh curries or car phone warehouse or whatever right but in the US you have PC Richards I went to PC Richards 25 years ago to buy a fridge and you could t- pay for the fridge in six installments nine installments 12 installments I was at Citibank we launched the private label business. Private label business is nothing else but sales finance on a credit card, right? So buy now, pay later is not significantly something very, very new. What they've done beautifully, beautifully, is integrated it into the payment process, right? So they have they've taken technology, right? And improved the customer experience dramatically. I remember going to PC Richards and God knows how many forms I had to sign god knows how painful that was right outcome was the same today two or three clicks and everything is kind of done right fundamentally the thing has not changed okay so fundamentally is buy now pay later going to go away i don't think so it's been there for the last 25 years it's maybe 50 years god alone knows even before my time chances are buy now pay later will it change in terms of delivery will it change in terms of you know speed Will it become much, much easier? A hundred percent, so so this will kind of this trend will continue, I think, for a long time to come.
0: I I had to chuckle because I remembered my experience at Sears. This was many, many, many years ago, right? It was exactly the same thing. You're trying to buy something, you had a Stack of paperwork to fill out, and 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 now you're absolutely right. They use technology to make the experience so much more seamless, so much easier. They bring down the dollar, um, and and just say, "Hey, here you go. You can't afford it. Pay it in four installments." And and the concept of that is on you. I, I do have to ask though, because this is something I I talked about quite a bit the last few years. Call it a moment of reckoning, if you will. If we think back at how fintech started, the likes of PayPal and what have you, the promise of fintech of what it was supposed to do, right? Quote, unquote, disrupt banking. I think that word is overused to some extent. Do you think the industry has achieved what it said it was going to do with respect to financial services and what what have we learned in the last two decades?
1: so uh, I think that's a very very smart question and I think we should all ponder a lot upon this question right uh, I you've thought a lot about it so I you know I'm thinking on my feet right now uh, so uh, uh, I'm sure you've got a very you know, informed view on it but look what fundamentally fundamentally as fintech brought new solutions to the table which have made customers lives much easier has it improved the customer experience? I would say absolutely. Okay, absolute. Okay. Think, I mean, look at PayPal and how you how easy it is to pay with PayPal. Look at Venmo. Right now, unlike the U unlike the UK where you got faster payments, the US has no faster payments. The US payments, P two P payments are still extremely painful. Till Venmo changed the game on P two P kind of payments. Has it made life easier? A hundred percent. As buy now pay later, we've talked about it. Has it made it easier? Hundred percent. have companies made sending money, uh, remitting money to various parts of the world much easier. hundred percent. I think there was in initially when these kind of companies came along, they felt that they felt that they could go at it without banks, right? But now the, the smart fintechs, the smart fintechs all realized. That there is no value. There is no value in trying to position themselves as anti-bank, but actually positioning themselves as partner of banks. Right? Because ultimately the banks have scale. Right? I mean, Barclays, when I was at Barclays, we used to talk about Barclays UK having 23 million customers. Right? 23 million customers is nearly one in two people in the UK. If you take out the kids right now that's a that's massive scale right now and is Barclays throwing a lot of resources technology and trying to get it of course they are right it's the speed at which they can move right and the speed at which they can innovate versus the speed at the speed at which fintechs can scale right so one has scale one has you know the technology the ideas and stuff like that they can go at it and just fight and both frankly, struggle, or you come together and say, look, this is not core to what you're doing, right? And I'm willing to make some kind of arrangement that both of us win in this game. And I think those are the ones which have had the maximum benefit. So picking
0: up on that, I have a follow-on question. We talk a lot about when things are in the bottom, is the best time to build. You have needs to make things better. You have resources, people available to build things. What would your one advice be to people who want to start a fintech at this juncture, um, knowing what we are facing as as economies, as consumers, businesses, and what have you? What 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 would you advise them to do? What's the one thing you say? If you're starting a FinTech company right now, this is the number one thing you need to make sure you do.
1: Look, forget about the technology. The technology and all is all interesting. What is the customer pain point that you're solving and how does it make a significant difference as to how that customer is doing it today, right? I mean, just think, I'll give you a very, very simple example, right? Maybe three, four hundred years ago, the only way to send a letter to anybody was by pigeon right? Literally by pigeon. So pigeons used to fly from one place to the other and carry letters. After pigeon then came, you know, you wrote letters, you sent it in the mail and suddenly time crashed. Okay. Then from mail, it went and I'm skipping, you know, telegram and stuff like that. Email time crashed again. And today chat, right? Why is it that we think chat is so much better than email, right? And this is my point, right? My point is take a real customer pain point, right? And convert it and make it significantly, the customer experience significantly better. And if you can solve these two things, right? Then you will be successful. The technology will be an enabler. That technology exists today. That's not the problem.
2: And, and speaking about uh, that part of um, making things significantly better, I want to delve a bit on um, how banking infrastructure in general can can be better for the next generation. I know you've been quite involved in the digital asset space within Barclays, Ashok. Um, I just wanted to understand your thoughts about digital assets. Um, I mean, of course, in the aftermath of what happened with FTX and all that, that is that is a little bit of a, um, uh, I don't want to get into that, uh, that uh, topic, but, Really, where do you think the promises lie for digital assets and within the banking industry?
1: See, uh, Arun, at least the way I think about and the way I think about it is, it's a transition, right? In the good old days, it used to be all paper, cash, and coins, right? Now, over a period of co- time, coins have, largely speaking, disappeared. It's a very inconvenient form uh, of transacting, correct? I mean, carrying coins is a pain. Accepting coins is an even bigger pain. Okay. So coins have kind of disappeared. Other than the United States, checks have, for the most part, disappeared. Right. The United States still loves their checks. Okay. God alone alone knows why, but they love their checks. Okay. But even in the United States, check usage is kind of coming down. Right. And digital payments, we all know, is taking off like no other. Right it's very interesting see how digital payments facilitated by visa mastercard have kind of in the last 20 25 years grown dramatically and then you see what's happening to the digital payments infrastructure in let's say in a place like india or china right i mean the paytm and stuff like that have just completely changed the game completely changed the game right so this transition is going to continue and at some stage a digital version will come about right there's no question a digital version will come about it's just much more efficient right today you have digital wallets and you put fiat currency into it tomorrow you could put a digital pound a digital dollar a digital rupee into your wallet right now it'll take a lot of time the model the regulations you know will this disintermediate the banking sector Will and not disintermediate the banking sector? Does this make sense only for very large kind of transactions? Doesn't make sense for retail transactions. Even in today's day and age, Arun, everything is done. Transaction date settlement is T plus two. Right? Now, why the hell is it T plus two? A T plus two by definition means that there are inefficiencies in the system. Right? That take two days to kind of figure out the settlement. Right? It's incredible, Right? Today sitting in London, I used to send money to New York every month. The bank was very nice to me. The bank used to send me a text saying, hey, your money has left London. But I'm less interested. I'm interested in money having left London. But what I'm really interested in is money reached New York, right? Because I'm sending it there for a reason, right? And that anxiety that it takes because it's T plus two, then after two days, I've got to follow up, then suddenly there'll be a weekend. Suddenly some holiday, suddenly this happened, cut off, cut off time for FX. So much anguish in just sending money from one place to the other, right? So will these inefficiencies get ironed out and is digital currencies, digital assets, one form of that? It is, it will happen. Now, can I predict when? Who the hell knows, right? Uh, I can't predict that, but I do know. Now this is a natural trend.
2: Absolutely, that's, that's fascinating because you kind of, uh, the settlement's point is perhaps something I've been debating for a long time on my head. The, the number of applications, the, the finality that digital bring, the instant finality that digital bring, things like treasury management, the, the efficiencies that can bring, um real-time liquidity risk management
1: also also lineage, lineage
2: mm. right? Yep.
1: Bank, you know i saw this go from here to here yeah it's a big deal right absolutely
0: think about the impact on small businesses right you get an email that says you are getting paid to the point when the money actually leaves your clients say hey we've paid you to the point where you get a notice from your bank Hey, we receive it to the point when you actually get access to that money. It's, I would say it's three to five days turnaround. That's what I've been seeing for my business for the last few years. And, and so if you think about more and more people are becoming their own solo entrepreneurs or small business owners, that turnaround kills businesses, especially when things are you know, going through the cycle that we are going right now. So much more needs to be done. Um, Before we let you go, uh, Ashok, I I wanted to ask you one thing,
1: a real quick thing.
0: What is the one thing you look forward to in 2023?
1: Oh, lots to look forward to. I mean, things are changing so fast, and I think the best is ahead of us, right? And, uh, you know, just keep, I mean, honestly, keeping the mind alive and staying relevant and seeing where all of this is going, uh, it's fascinating meeting meeting, uh, young folks and, you know, see how they're thinking about stuff. It's absolutely, absolutely fascinating, right? The whole bunch, you know, uh, I tell you fundamentally, the way I think about it, real innovation happens when you question very, very, very basic assumptions. When every business model, everything has some very, 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 very basic assumptions. When you go and question that very basic assumption and you're able to kind of flip that on the head, real innovation happens, right? And I think right now is an absolutely opportune time to do that kind of thing, right? And that's why I'm excited about it. And, uh, you know, let's see what happens next, right? I'm ready for the ride. Buckle up.
0: I am super excited and inspired by just what you literally just said. So thank you so much for ending our conversation in such a high note. appreciate you spending time with us. And uh, for the rest of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week.